is Prorata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Mac. On today's show, a big change in the government's inquiry into Google and how social media reacted to Kobe Bryant's death. But first, tech fail in Iowa. So it's currently around 11 a.m. the morning after the Democratic presidential caucuses in Iowa, and we still have no idea who won or who came in second or third or really much of anything after a cascading debacle that touched on everything from poor tech training to overwhelmed phone lines to good old fashioned human incompetence. The most basic explanation here is that Iowa Democrats plan to use a new app through which the 1,700 or so precinct captains would send their results to headquarters, which would then spit out results to the rest of us. But it seems that a lot of those precinct captains, many of whom are likely elderly retirees, were never properly trained on how to use the app. And when they started to call in their results via phone the way they used to, they often couldn't get through. So right now the party is trying to sort through all the app data and phone data and paper data from the various precincts, hoping to get us valid numbers at some point, hopefully today. Many of the candidates, meanwhile, are already on the ground in New Hampshire. Why all this matters beyond the obvious electoral implications is that it's a huge black eye for the future prospects of using new technologies in our elections, particularly smartphones, which are something that many believe could help expand the number of voters, such as those who can't afford to spend what is sometimes hours in line waiting at a physical polling location. But it's hard to see right now how any government official at any level would be willing to adopt such innovations, if nothing else, because they'd be scared of looking just as dumb as Iowa Democratic officials look today. And that could be last night's most lasting legacy. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Holly Russon Gilman, a former tech policy advisor in the Obama White House. But first, this. Axios chief technology correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata podcast. We're joined now by Holly Russon Gilman, a former tech policy advisor in the Obama White House and currently a faculty member at both Georgetown and Columbia University. So, Holly, I assume you're a bit of a political junkie since you were once a field organizer in New Hampshire. At what point last (laughs) night did you move from kind of bored to kind of alarmed? Well, that's a great question, and thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the show, and I should also note that I'm a fellow at New America. You know, last night, it became pretty apparent to me that it was going to be a long night, that we weren't going to have results in quickly. So I sort of, (laughs) I said, I'm going to go to bed, and I'm going to wait to see what the morning brings. I also had been thinking about the process changes to the Iowa caucus this year, and I sort of anticipated that that might add a level of complexity to the report out. And so that, then plus the introduction of the app, I sort of had a hunch that it might be a while before we got some results. So let me ask about the app. And let's assume, because we don't actually know for sure yet, it seems, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, whether the app didn't work so much as people might not have known how to download it slash been trained well on it. But you seem to make a broader argument that we didn't need an app in the first place, even if it had worked perfectly. Explain that. So I think that's 100% right. I think it's too soon to make conjectures about if the app worked. I think there's sort of two broader points. One is, do we need apps in these kinds of settings? And I think there can be an argument that we always see a desire for these one-off apps during elections. And I think there is a broader question of, is this the right marriage of 
the proper technology with the right problem, right? Are we trying to fix the Iowa caucus with apps when inserting data into a spreadsheet or a phone call would do? It's sort of a solution in search of a problem. Given that, you're right. In this case, it wasn't about smartphone voting, for example, which could be something that would increase the number of voters. This was really about speed, right? Getting the results faster or maybe more accurate. Why, from your perspective, did they feel in Iowa they needed an app where, as you say, historically, precinct captains pick up the phone, say this person got this many votes and they're done? You know, it's a good question, right? I mean, I think, does it speak to sort of a broader trend in our society where people as consumers are used to these instantaneous movies, two-hour grocery delivery. And so we're sort of wanting things more and more quickly, and that's sort of become the expectation in our private and social realm. And then I always sort of projecting those expectations onto our political life, where in reality, democracy is not like consumerism. It needs deliberation. It needs trust instead of our instantaneous attention, right? It's more like slow cooking than instantaneous delivery. And I think that's sort of one of the tensions here. And the Iowa caucus, talk about, you know, a slow cooking process, right? The caucus by nature is a more time-intensive process. And we introduced a bunch of new variables to the process. So reporting out three sets of numbers instead of just one. So, you know, you, when you sort of add all of that together, you're sort of looking at a lot of complexities that would sort of be antithetical to sort of instantaneous reporting. How does what happened last night, from your perspective, impact public confidence in, if not the caucus process, just voting in general, even though, as you say, caucuses and primaries, which is what most states have, are very different processes? It's a great question. And I think that's really the right question. And there's sort of a twofold problem here. One is there's so much mistrust and cynicism in our democratic governance institutions and our election institutions in the United States that people are very quick to assume the worst case scenario. It's probably true that there was a lack of training, you know, questions about accessibility and capacity and all those things. But that doesn't mean that there was malfeasance. And the fact that we're just sort of jumping to that, I think, is really endemic of a much deeper chronic problem of the crisis of our democracy that we really need to address. And how do we sort of rebuild these governance institutions to show that government works and that it works for the people? And we need fallbacks, we need redundancies, And we can't let the technology get in the way of democracy working. So that's sort of one element. And the second is sort of what does this hold for the future of the Iowa caucuses? The reason that the caucuses got more complex this year was in part to address questions around transparency that were raised in 2016 when you had an extremely tight margin between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And yet when you just released the delegate count showing, you know, Hillary getting these delegates, there were real questions raised about the accuracy of these results and wanting more transparency in the process. If you go back to the history of why we have the Iowa caucus, right, it was after the very hotly contested 1968 Democratic Convention, sort of the 1972 McGovern-Fraser Committee was put in to make reforms to the early nominating process to make the process more participatory, more democratic, more transparent. Now we're in 2020. Iowa is a state that is 90 percent white. And I do think we have to really ask questions about, you know, the role of Iowa in this early nominating process, the way it creates this sort of horse trading media effect, 
You know, there are all of these questions, and yet there are some core aspects of the process, the way it empowers people, the way it gives them agency, that really might be worth replicating in other elements of our democracy. It's interesting. Uh, David Yepsen, who's kind of considered kind of the, the media dean of Iowa, uh, tweeted this morning that, that he thinks this uh, maybe Iowa shouldn't do this anymore, which somebody suggested is like John Madden saying maybe, you know, football shouldn't be played anymore. You talked about the future a little bit, in particular tech innovation or tech adoption when it comes to the electoral process. There's been an argument that in the future, you know, you, you talk about civic engagement, that the real way to get civic engagement in voting is to figure out a way eventually to let us vote on our phones. So we don't have to sit in the long lines. It's something everybody, most people have. Do you think what happened last night really put, you know, that was already kind of a pipe dream, puts it even further off? It's a good question, right? I would always start with what problem are we solving for? It would be low participation, correct? And for some precincts, and you see these in every presidential election, those hours long lines, stopping that. Right. And so I guess my sort of problematizing of that statement is if we have voter disenfranchisement, We've made voting extraordinarily inaccessible in this country, right? It's during a day of the week when most people have work. It doesn't take into account things like shift jobs, child care, accessibility. So sort of that's sort of one sort of tranche of issues. And so for me, there's many steps on this path to making voting more accessible, maybe ultimately down the road, it's not inconceivable that if implemented correctly, that could be where we're going. But we have a lot of other steps that I think would be my sort of recommendation before I would do all out, you know, voting on your phone. Holly Russell Gilman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful delight. My final two right after this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now back to the ProRata podcast. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is a major change to how the federal government is investigating big tech. Or more specifically, who in the federal government is investigating big tech? As the New York Times first reported, Department of Justice antitrust boss Macon Delrahim has recused himself from investigating possible anti-competitive practices at Google. At issue is work Delrahim did 13 years ago to lobby for Google's purchase of ad tech giant DoubleClick while he was still in private practice. That deal passed and arguably is a major driver behind many of today's concerns around Google. So DOJ still in, but Delrahim out. And finally, the tragic death of Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna became one of the most talked about news events of the social media era, according to data from Newswhip that was provided exclusively to Axios. To be clear, not the most actual news stories. That title, as it were, went to the coronavirus, but rather the most social media interactions, 208 million in the week following the crash, which was more than coronavirus, impeachment, the Super Bowl, the Iowa caucuses, and the Grammys combined. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national thank a mail carrier day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata podcast.